Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I have an interview with my dear friend, Rob Bates, who is currently in a program getting ready to be a counselor, but in his former life, he was an E7 in the Army, and we met during our schooling And we are here to talk about transitions out of the military, that loss of status, loss of identity, and how important that really is to you. And you don't necessarily realize it until you're back into the civilian world. So I think this can be helpful for clinicians. It can also be helpful just for anybody that knows someone in the military. You can help them understand maybe what they're going through if you start seeing some changes in behavior or struggles, you may ask them, you know, how, how is this transition for you and how are you coping? What are your resources? So enjoy the podcast and let me know what you think. Hey, how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm loving life, living, surviving. Got through another week of, of school, so life is good. You're so close to the end. I know. I know. I, I, I admitted today that I, I feel like I've I've seen everything, and I've got it organized to the point where I'm no longer in my desperate survival mode of, <laughs> of the semester, and I'm far enough ahead that I feel like I, I can get things done, so. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm really happy. So thanks so much, Rob, for joining me for this talk. You posted an amazing article on Facebook, which kind of got, in, got us talking about this subject, And it was titled Loss of Status in the Military Transition. It was written January 16th of this year, 2019, by a guy named Joe Paschall Sr. And he is a VP at NLogic. Looks like it was posted on LinkedIn first. And it discusses the different types of losses, different aspects of loss, discusses how these losses affect relationships, substance use, personal relationships, and extreme instances, how it can lead to PTSD symptoms and even suicide. So uh, it's an issue that's been around since uh, always, uh, but it's never really been addressed. And I think we've kind of discussed before that we didn't really have words for this loss of status. So I thought it might be nice about if you could first introduce yourself and then we can talk a little bit about how we met and how that was even a transition, and then kind of discuss some more about the article. Yeah. My name is Rob Bates. I'm, I'm finishing my master's in counseling psychology at St. Martin's University in, in Olympia, Washington. I'm in my last semester. Woohoo! Uh, I know. I am so excited to be done and, and move into that next phase. Uh, <laughs> oh, I remember you know, that. <laughs> stress rolls off your back. So, yeah. So, I, I'm, I'm living in central Washington, treating treating at a, at a local mental health, uh, community mental health center here in, in Grant County. And, and I, I love my job. It is the best ever. I get to work with great people who just need help going in a different direction. And as we sit down and figure it out, it's amazing. In my background, I, I retired out of the military as a senior NCO, and, and I've, I've gotten all the, uh, the little Boy Scout pens you can get from that, from going to Iraq, Afghanistan, North Africa, the Balkans, and just vaguely, um, without detail, what did you do in the military? Were you on the infantry side or? Well, I, I was on the infantry side. I was a uh, senior leader in the infantry. I, I 
spent most of my career in the infantry platoon, starting at, at Second Ranger Battalion right here at Fort Lewis, Washington. And then I, I went to a, another infantry unit down the road, and it just continued on. I had had a, had a great stint for two or three years in Italy. I can't remember. I had so much fun. <laughs> uh, came back here to Fort Lewis, Washington, went was a drill sergeant for a while, and that let me tell you, that's like punishment for everything fun I ever did in the army, <laughs> and it was it was a ro- a lot of punishment. So, uh, and then uh, I came back to Fort Lewis and, and deployed a few times, and yeah, I'm retired right here. So that's how you ended up in Washington. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm originally from California, but I I came up here with the military and I stayed here for my kids. I so see. family's important. And just uh, because I don't know who's going to be listening to this, and so I want to address people that have both been in the military and understand what we're talking about more specifically, and also really most importantly for people that have not been in the military, they understand where we're coming from. Um, I was also in the military, but I was only in for six years active duty, and we were both enlisted, but I was only an E4, and that's an enlisted rank that goes from one to nine. And if I remember correctly, you were a sergeant major, which would be an E9. Actually, I was an E7. Oh, you were an E7. Okay. So but still. I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was the operation NCO for a, a battalion, which, which meant that basically when, whenever the battalion commander wasn't there, whenever the SR major wasn't there, I had to make the decisions. And it was, it was pretty uh, impressive. But, you know, if, if we had really big decisions, I would always go find the people that, that were going to be held accountable for that mm-hmm. so, you know but in the military and particularly in the infantry i think um i was in aviation so although rank was important i think there wasn't quite the structure that there was in the infantry at least how we saw but there is a huge difference between e4 and e9 not to mention that you're in the non-commissioned officer rank at that point but there's a big jump in status from e4 to e7 and yeah. when we first met, I did not know this about you. And of course, you didn't know that about me. And as we got to know each other in class, which was during our bachelor's program, then uh, when you told me what rank you were, I immediately had a response of kind of pulling back because it, it was a natural instinct for me just from those six years in the military. So that status is important and it stays with you. And so that's kind of what, what led us to this conversation is that's a big deal is that status in the military is a huge deal. Yeah. So, so when you, I mean, even inside the military, you have transitions. So you, you talk about you're an E4. So when you go to E4 to E5, you, you become a junior NCO, which is, which is two levels of, of people who aren't actually career yet. Uh, usually it's, it's under 10 years, you, you become an E, well, about, I don't know, the new army is, is different. <laughs> so like 36 months, people are coming E5s, where it used to be 48 months, whatever. I, I don't I don't understand what, what they're doing now, but that's good for them. I, I have a new job now. <laughs> but, uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's the E5, which is, which is a young sergeant, usually 24, 25 years old, and, and is learning his job and, and learns to uh, be in charge of people. We give them that, 
that small piece of the pie, which is three people that he's usually looking at. And, and, and in the infantry, he is, he is responsible for their life and death. And while people don't always get that, it, it, it becomes a, becomes a bigger thing, especially later on, because after you become that sergeant, a couple of years later, you become a staff sergeant, which is an E6. And now you have eight people who rely on you every day for, for whatever they need. And, and that, once again, it goes back to that, that earned respect, that earned, earned privilege. It, it, there's lots of things to go along with it that, that we see inside the world, but in, in this microcosm, it, it's, it's really gained through, a, I'll say a horrible word, it's gained through a meritocracy of, of earned and, and just working through it. But I will admit, when, when people earn those ranks because they're held at the, uh, the unit level, that those ranks are sometimes a good old boy system where I like Billy, so I'm going to send Billy to the E5 board so that he can progress in his, his rank. I don't like Sam, so I'm not going to send him to the board. Mm-hmm. And th- there are problems in that, but you know, for the most part, everything works out because when Billy can't do his job, he gets fired, gets put back to E4, and life goes on. But as they progress to E6, once again, they have so much going on inside their life, and 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 they're they're working to life, limb, eyesight. These guys have so much responsibility, and it just builds up in them. And then you break into the next level, which is called the top three. It's E7, E8, and E9, which in the military is, is called the Senior Leadership Corps. When you break into that, all your records and a picture of you go to the Department of the Army and a whole bunch of E9s sit in a room and they have yes-no buttons and they select you based off the records you have and a picture of you of whether or not you're going to be promoted to the next rank. It's really, really interesting because talking to some of those people, biggest thing as to what people look at when they look at the picture is whether or not the person in the picture looks overweight. Wow. It's, just, it's a craziness for the, for the system. So you could have a high score in your APFT, which is the Army Physical Fitness Test, on your records. But if you look overweight in your picture, it's an automatic no. Hmm. So you go through this entire process, and you know you, you come into this, this career zone, which is the E7, E8, and E9, which means you're going to continue on towards retirement. In, in, in the military, you still can retire as an E6. You don't have to progress on, but it's not normally something that happens. You, you either made a pretty big mistake and you're going to retire as an E6, or, like I said, you just got passed over because the board did something or didn't like something in your past. And, of course, there's those exceptions like MOS positions that, they're phasing out and they're not progressing people and things like that. But that's an exception to the rule. Right. Right. You know, because if you, if you're in a really small career field, you, you don't have places to really promote into if there's somebody already there. Right. They don't just promote people for no reason. They, they promote people that they want to come into a position. Right. So in the infantry, there's always positions that are unfilled by people that are of the right rank to fill them. As a, as a leader, you're, you're expected to be able to work one position down or, wait a minute, I think it's one down, two up. So as, as an E7, I was expected to be able to hold an E9's job, 
which, like we talked about, I, I at times had to pick up that slack and, and, and do their job when they were doing important things, you know, like sleeping so they could make good decisions the next morning. So we all have to, we all have to pull our own weight. Yeah. And I think we talked about prior and something I wanted to bring up again was that when you're talking about these responsibilities in the military, it's not just a job. It's not just a nine to five responsibility. It's 24 seven and it's really part of your identity and you live that every day due to the way the military runs and the way that it has to run, not only because you are 24-7 and get deployed and there's no going home on the weekends when you're in North Africa. <laughs> that, that is true. But it's also you got know, to do with life and death and you have to be able to respect those ranks in a time of crisis. Right. And, and you know, you said fired. And, and I think one of the great things to, to really know of when you talk about identity is a lot of times when you get fired in the military, it doesn't mean you actually lose your paycheck. It means you lose your position and you lose your respect. Mm-hmm. And that, that is even more de- devastating than, than money or, or just the job. So, Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people, it's not just at work, it's at home too. You start to carry that, that responsibility and status and everything else into your home life because your family also feels whatever rank you are. You know, you, you have a spouse or you have kids. They're also being treated in the same manner that you are in some regards by other people and other family units when you're away. You know, officers' spouses don't get treated the same as enlisted spouses and so on. Yeah, that is true. And there's, there's, there's nothing better as, as, as a soldier to have somebody somebody's spouse look at you and go, you know who my my wife or husband is? I mean, that's just like no, but I'm I'm trying to do my job. We we just uh, let me carry on with what I'm doing here. So yeah, that that privilege does not just just get held by that that soldier. It gets held by the spouse or or whoever is is in their 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 little uh, their family system there. Yeah, it's it's quite an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I guess in some probably high corporate uh, businesses, it's something like that. But you'd have to be pretty high ranking. It's not like it's pervasive through the entire company in the civilian world. Right. Right. I mean, it, it does still happens. I mean, if you're some major CEO's wife or, or husband, I'm sure, I'm sure that there is, if you walk into the business, there, there are people that are going to kind of defer to you because... Who wants to piss off the boss's spouse? <laughs> sure, but I think that also has to do with socioeconomics, too. That's In the civilian world, you're talking about power and wealth rather than just yeah. rank and respect. Right, right. So, you know, if the CEO loses his job, he, he still keeps his money. And sure, he walks away in, in, in disgrace. But those, those skills are really transferable. And, and he can go work someplace else or be a consultant. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the army really doesn't hire consultants when you go back. <laughs> you can go back as as a trainer, but you know, it it, it really it's not the same. Right. The CEO was was a rock star, uh, a platoon sergeant. Yeah, 
Yeah, we're just the platoon sergeant. They, they've got new ones they're training. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you can hear that in the background. The rooster has decided that now's the time he's going to crow, so just ignore that. Well, you know, Holly, it's time to get up. <laughs> I guess so. One thirty, it's time for me to get out of bed and get going. Freaking rooster. <laughs> So speaking of retirement status, so you retired um, not that long before I met you, I think. You had started your schooling fairly soon after you retired. Is I that, did. Is that right? Yeah, I retired in August. I think we started class in September. Yeah. So no break for you. Uh, no break for me. Yeah. How was yeah, that was transition cool. for you going from all these things we've been talking about where it's night and day, it's your identity, it's everything. And then you're stepping into a world where you in theory still have that feeling of yourself and you're walking into a world where nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows that earned respect that you had. Yeah. And on top of that, it was college. So you've also got not all, but a lot of younger people that really don't understand not only that rank and system, but the military culture. Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, <laughs> does that cover it? No. No. <laughs> uh, no it, it was extremely difficult to, to make that transition because, you know, I, I know who I am. And, you know, there, there was points in my life that I thought no matter what my, no matter what my rank was, I'm still me. And I can still project whatever power I want to, because I understand that, that power is those power is what you take and what you make of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I get that, but yeah, I, I I also didn't realize that there was a, there was a structural framework that that kind of held my power up in the military. Yeah, you know. So, but as I, I've yeah, it was a huge transition to to be. Just another college kid where, you know, you, you have an opinion that that's based off a wealth of knowledge and, and experience and, and going and seeing things and seeing really horrible things in my life and getting here. And here's these 18, 19 year olds who have have experience. They do. And, and I'm not I'm not trying to, to minimize any type of trauma they face in their lives. It's different. Yeah. You know, so it, it was really hard. And in the military, you're wearing your rank on yourself. Like you, anywhere on base or even around base out in the community, you've got your rank on and someone sees you and it's automatic. They know who you are, or at least they know what rank you are, what what respect that rank earns and demands, as opposed to yeah. you're in civilian clothes and you just walk into whatever room and no one knows, and this goes with, you know, anybody, but <clears throat> no one knows what you've been through, what your experience is, you know, they have no idea. You could have been working at Staples for the last 40 years. They don't know. Yeah. Funny story. Uh, you know, we talk about rank and, and, and just appearance and, and privilege. I, uh, I've grown a beard since I got out of the military. I love my beard. I'll never <laughs> give it up. But, uh, I had to take my son to Madigan, which is the military hospital on Fort Lewis. And he'd had a concussion. And I'm, I'm sitting here talking through some of the, the protocols with the, uh, the doctor. And, and I, I know him because we were studying closed head injuries in, in, in one of my classes at that point. And 
you know, we're having this discussion. And they thought because of my beard, I was still active duty and that I was in special forces there on Fort Lewis. Uh. I, had to, I had to tell them, no, 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 I'm retired, not, <laughs> not that guy. So it was really, really interesting. But wearing your rank for everyone to see, it, it, it just, it kind of simplifies, simplifies life to know who you are and where you stand in that system. Absolutely. So, so when, you, when you look at somebody you automatically look at their rank to know how you're going to interact with them. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it's below you, you get to make a choice. You get to be just the cool guy. You get to be a little more tense or, or just kind of set some more boundaries. Or if it's someone above you, you defer and you let them choose what that, that, that relationship's going to be like. Mm-hmm. It, it's really different. It, it, it'd be like walking up to a doctor in a hospital with a white lab coat. You <laughs> right. know how to interact with a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. But, but how do you interact with a nurse? I mean, well, it's basically the same, but, but you have somebody that comes up with nothing on them in a hospital, and you don't know who they are, and you just talk to them like they're a person. It, it, it becomes really different. And it doesn't mean that you don't talk to people that aren't your rank like they're not a person, even though that does happen. <laughs> It, it, it means that it just kind of clarifies that role you're going to have in that relationship. Right, right. It's definitely more structured and for a reason. Yeah, it is. It is. Because, you know, somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to make a decision. Yeah. And if it's left to group vote, we may, it may be a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that stepping into a second career it can feel like you're going from a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond or the low man on the ladder when it feels like the last 20 or 30 years of your life, you worked really hard to climb up that ladder and now the ladder got kicked out from under you. And I can imagine that would be a pretty incredible adjustment, particularly for someone that held a command. Yeah, you know, at first, at first it was really hard. But now as I look back with perspective, I keep pulling the ladder up and handing it back to people going, I don't want this ladder anymore. I love where I am and I love what I'm doing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So going from being in charge of of all kinds of people, (laughs) you know, so at my last deployment in Afghanistan, at night, the battalion commander and the battalion command sergeant major would go to sleep and and I'd be the battle captain, and I'd be controlling the entire space. Whatever happened there, it had to come through our, our, our center. And, and then we told them what they could do or what they wouldn't do or, or directed them in a different way, kind of coordinated movements of people. You know, that was huge. I, you know, I, I just thought it was a normal thing for people to do. I mean, that's just what, what you do when, when you get put in that position. And then as I've talked to people since I got out, that's not normal for people, <laughs> you know. So it, it, it was just kind of, I felt like a, a fish out of water. So I went from my fishbowl to no water to uh, laying on the beach now. Because now I'm like, you know, I have all kinds of skills. And if you need something, of course, ask me. But I don't want to punch above my weight anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I imagine you know quite a few people now that have retired. Do you feel like they've had a similar experience where they've gone through that and come out the other side? Or do you think more people than not 
continue to struggle with it. You know, I think there are, I think it's very common for people to go through this struggle. And I think it's rare for people to, to have that flawless transition than it is to have to figure it out, especially when we've been senior NCOs. We don't have, we have skills that transfer to the real world, but they're different than the real world skills. And yeah. sometimes teaching an old dog new tricks is really hard. <laughs> At senior officers transition, they usually have it a little bit easier because they've been in these positions of power, but they, they, they function in a different way. So they, they have more of a strategic thinking and an executive focus in their behaviors and the way they, they control things, whereas senior NCOs are, are tactical. They're dealing with the things that are right in front of their face. And, you know, all, there isn't always the, the decorum or the nicety that, that happens in executive strategy. Sure. And we talked a little bit in our other conversation about kind of the difference between active duty and reserves and National Guard and yeah. transitioning that as well over to DOG, DOD jobs and civilian jobs. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah, I, I remember that conversation. So one of the things I, I, I think is really interesting is, is active duty, you're that way every day of the week, right? And so, on weekends sometimes. <laughs> and on weekends and and at midnight when somebody gives you a call because they've done something stupid, you have to go <laughs> bail them out of jail. That's and, one of the yeah. reasons I never went to NCO school, just by the way. Oh, God. I refused yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't happen that often, but it, when it did, you were always, it's a memorable event. It's always a memorable event. So <laughs> That's such a nice way to put it. Yeah. So... When, when you think about active duty, you have all these additional responsibilities, and, and but you're always in that climate. I also look at the change in status differently than National Guard and Reserve, because when you think about a senior NCO in, in the National Guard or in the Reserve, they may not always be full-time with what they're doing at work. Like they've at, kind at, of kept one foot out in the civilian world. Yeah, they, they, they keep one foot on both sides of that door. And one of the uh, the biggest things I've seen in their dynamic is a senior NCO could have a, a brand new lieutenant come in who just finished his education, did all this stuff. We're, we're outside. The, uh, the Sergeant Major owns a construction company, and this lieutenant works for him as one of his underlings. Whereas when they go to work with the National Guard, you have the Sergeant Major and, and that lieutenant the star major's at the top of the, uh, the, the non-commissioned officer food chain where that lieutenant's at the bottom of the officer food chain. And that dynamic just continuously goes back and forth and changes. And, and it's just a, it's a, different, it's a, it's a different dynamic. It's a word I said like 12 times. <laughs> I really had not thought about smaller communities and that happening. Yeah. That, that, would, oh, that would be really difficult. It, it would be really difficult. I mean, just think, just think how often that... that that rank and status has to go back and forth, and how how confusing that could be. Right. And then, you know, does the lieutenant say something to the sergeant major while he's at at this job that he won't like at the other job, where he might cost him his civilian job or might cost him his military job? I mean, that's just really hard. 
Yeah. Yeah, I really just had not considered that because when I was in, I was in. You know, there was no yeah. outside world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that happens so often, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow, that would be incredible. I, I, I can think of days where when I was a drill sergeant, I would get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, go to work, wake the privates up at 5.30. We'd train all day, put the privates privates to bed at eight thirty nine o'clock do paperwork until midnight this is when you were a drill sergeant back. yeah being a drill sergeant <laughs> I'd, I'd go back go back to work at four or five in the morning so i literally didn't have a life outside of my job wow and that sucks yeah do you ever get a chance to do that don't <laughs> yeah it's funny when i was in school I thought about being a drill sergeant and staying in forever. And then once I got to the real army, quote unquote, um, I was like, no way I went out. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work the same. That's another thing too. People that, you know, people that have been in the military kind of know that that structure and rigidity, some of it stays, but it's very different in training than it is in the real army. It, it really is. And you have to have those clear boundaries in training because especially in basic where you're, you're basically, you're indoctrinating somebody into a, a new organization and they have to learn all the, the, the skills and the traditions and, and everything of that organization. And you really have limited time. You have limited time to teach that. I, I, I know, I remember when I was going through basic training and, and, and I thought it was forever and then I remember going back as, as a drill sergeant and going, I don't have enough time for any of this stuff. <laughs> Just not only doing the teaching, but the logistics and everything behind it. So, yeah, it is, it is a completely different environment because when you're in that training environment, we don't have the time to, to get to know you on a one-on-one -on -one basis most of the time. Right. You know, there's, there's times where we can be just that laid-back person. Usually I use it as, as a way to get people to do what I, a manipulation. Oh, yeah. I manipulated people by being nice to them when I was a drill sergeant. So, you know, I, I let, let all my soldiers see someone being really, really uh, mean. We'll call it mean next to me. <laughs> and I look at them and go, you know, I can be mean like that too. Or do you just want to do what I asked you to? It was great. People did what I asked them to. Good cop, bad cop? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was great, great times. Ugh, I, I distinctly am having a vision of this drill sergeant we had in basic training that uh, I don't know if it was true or not, but they told us he used to be special forces and he would just okay. like appear in the middle of the room. Like he probably ah. came up the back stairway or something when we were just all yeah. like towards the end of the night, we'd be cleaning up or writing letters or whatever. And he would just appear in the middle of the room. Like, freak us all out. And he never raised his voice, ever. And he was the scariest one. I used to hide in my bay, and when, when the privates would be out, I'd have someone else bring my privates in, and then I'd just show up <laughs> and start talking to people like, hey, how are you doing? And they would just, it would really freak them out. And he'd do that <laughs> enough times. And, and just like you say, real sorry, I'd just show up in the middle of the room. Yeah. I don't know where he came from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so then they start having a conversation with you, and then they realize who you are, and it goes right back to that status. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I'm talking to drill sergeant so-and-so. 
Yes. You know, and, and you see that look in their face and it's just absolute care that they were just, they were talking to you like a human being and maybe telling you something they shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. goodness. Memories. So we were uh, talking before uh, in our other conversation about veteran memorabilia, like hats and license plates and flags. And we had kind of had the talk about the difference between pride and loss of status and then similarities to pride and loss of status. Like many, many people continue to uh, honor their service and, and yeah, and it doesn't mean they don't feel a loss of status and it, it doesn't mean that they're struggling with a loss of status just because they have pride. Right, right. But, but some of them are struggling with a loss of status. They, they need that poor recognition of who they were. Yeah. How they bring... It's, it, to me, it often feels like that, that high school football player who's 40 years old, still living in the uh, glory days of, of that, that one game in high school, and they continuously tell that story, and you're just like... Dude, that was like twenty years ago, almost thirty years ago. Can we can we get some new stories? <laughs> you know, it it is it is a total loss of status for some of those guys, and it's how they how they keep that connection to the status. You know, I personally feel like I, I, I wore a flag on my arm for twenty years because through most of through most of my entire career, I was I was considered to be in a deployable unit. Mm-hmm. That's all the patriotism I ever needed to show, and or ever need will need to show. Because if you question my patriotism, ha, good for you. Watch me walk now. I'm I'm a forty year old man with arthritis. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because that's not funny that you have arthritis, but it, but it, it's true. It, it is kind of funny too. You know, what did you sacrifice for your country? I sacrificed most of my body. Yeah. You just kind of put a flag out on your house. Good for you. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you for recognizing my service. (laughs) But I do also want to recognize, just as a side note, people that didn't necessarily lose status because maybe they only served for a few years, but they served in a time of war like in Korea or Vietnam or World War II. They may have only served for a couple of years and they have, you know, pride in their service. And that's a very different thing than kind of what we're talking about, which is people that do feel yeah. that huge loss of status and feel like they need to stay connected with it from memorabilia. And, and, and while I don't want to minimalize anything I've, I've done, I, I, I look at some of these, these things that uh, World War II and, and, and Korea veterans didn't, and I kind of minimalize everything in my service because those guys really struggled. You know, where, where I had, had awesome Gore-Tex when it rained, they had canvas, leather, and wool. Right. And they, they lived in those conditions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were just some amazing men and women. I mean, really. They really are. Yeah. I I really, you know, I, it's a good time to mention it, I guess. I wasn't really going to bring it up. But now that it's coming up, uh, I think it's important to remind people that we're not in the military. That not everyone that served feels like a quote-unquote veteran. And what I mean by that is when you compare services, because we all do that, people that have been in, if you put myself, 
who I, I went to Bosnia, but that wasn't a wartime event. Um, I was in during, you know, right after 9-11, but I ended up not going. My unit went. And that created its own psychological issues. But when I compare someone that has been to Iraq and North Africa and Korea and Vietnam, I don't feel the same way about my service as I feel about their service. And I almost feel embarrassed isn't the right word. I don't know if I have the right word to explain to people when people that weren't in the military are trying to honor my service or say, hey, why don't you go to the VFW or why don't you go to American Legion? It's like, but I didn't do those things. But isn't that in itself a, a loss of status? Right, it is. You never got the status that everyone else did, so you, you feel like you minimize yourself and, and your, your contribution because that's where you were. Right, minimalizing, that's good. Good, uh, good word to explain that. Yeah. 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 I think about it a lot because we have to do a military history checklist for my assessment in hospice. And one of the click downs we have to do is did the person serve in combat? And what I've had to explain to people is people that weren't in is, you know, what do you mean by served in combat? Do they feel like they were in combat? Or, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that say, oh, I trained to be a aerial gunner, but, and I was in the area, but we didn't actually go into combat and that's a different yeah. thing. And so when yeah. you say served in combat, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And have to assess how the veteran feels about it. Just because they were a veteran doesn't mean that they want a veteran pinning ceremony to honor their service because maybe they feel about it like I do. Right. right. And, and so but the people that are offering it weren't in the military um, and they might not tell us, understand. What I, what I usually tell people when I, when I run into that situation is when you really come down to it and you, you, you do the, uh, the statistics of it, less than 7% of, of America actually volunteers to go and, and, and serve in the military. So while they feel like they, they move, may lose status with, within the system and they feel like they're not deserving of, of that honor, what they don't realize is they've just really, just by volunteering and going and doing it, they've done so much that, that others are just not willing to do. Mm-hmm. Or able so. sometimes. Or able. You're yeah. right. You're right. So, I, have a, I have an uncle who's, who's blind, who's been blind basically since birth, and he's upset because he wishes he could have joined. You know, he would have played in the, uh, the band or whatever. But he wishes he could have served in some way. Yeah. And, you know, that, that really affects me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I heard someone mentioning it, and I, I really wish sometimes that we were more like other countries where there's a mandated two-year commitment, and not necessarily to the military, but to some kind of community service, whether it be... Um, job corps or Habitat for Humanity or the actual military, whatever. Um, I completely agree. I would do so much for, I think, so many things. Um, Not only discipline and self-worth, but a a sense of community. Yeah. You know, I I think that takes me back to a a great science fiction novel, the uh, Starship Troopers novel, where, where citizenship was guaranteed through service. 
and I don't think it has to be military service, but I think whether it be Conservation Corps, Peace Corps, yeah, whatever. That you know, when we, we I guess it's kind of off subject, but when we talk about the status of, of medical care, if if you want me to sign off, if, if everyone had some type of service that they had to give to this nation, and their reward was medical coverage, one hundred percent, I'd be all about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be an amazing idea. And that would go to people like, did, did you say it was your uncle? Yeah. That there would be yeah. some way for him to give back in service that doesn't require him to, him to be in the military. Yeah. You know, because there, there are real reasons why we, we can't have people that they can't pick up a gun and go fight. Or that they have that they can't pick up a gun and go fight. Because... You know, it's it's the military. There's real hazardous things that are happening all the time. And while you may not see yourself as as being in a dangerous area, but by, you know, just the very providence that that you're in Iraq or Afghanistan or any of these other places where somebody could come and try to hurt you, you inherently need to be able to fight because there are organized forces that want to come and hurt you. Right. And, and that doesn't mean you can't get hurt in America today. Somebody might decide they don't like you, but it's different. Yeah. It's really different. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, uh, towards getting towards the end of my notes here, we talked a little bit about the difference between civilians retiring or changing jobs or getting divorced. And yeah. any, any kind of change like that, changing identity, changing status is still a loss and it's still going to cause symptoms of grief because loss of retirement out of the military still causes a grief, whether, yeah. you know, it's still a loss. It's a loss of a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and people I think always want to say that grief is about death, but it doesn't have to be. Certainly no. the symptoms of grief have everything to do with any kind of loss. Yeah, I'm thinking about grief and loss right now and and going through that, that class in school and, and, and as I see it in my, my clients, and you know, we can grieve anything. We can be an, an addict who who is giving up something that they that's a coping mechanism they love because they don't actually have to deal with it. And they have to mourn that. Right. It, it's 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 okay. It's okay for them to mourn that. that it was something that they loved, and, and the more we pay homage to that mourning, we can move on. I mean, I don't want to say that meth is the same as, as, as a partner you've lived with for 50 years, but it, it kind of is. Right. It still creates the same feelings within us, regardless of what that loss right. is. Right. So when somebody transitions out of the military, not only do they have to give up their status, but they give up their paycheck, too. And now they have to learn a new system and, and assimilate into a new place. It's really hard when, you, when you've been given some very rigid instructions of, of who you are. I used to like the fact that I thought that I wasn't very rigid in my military precision. And as I left the military, I realized, oh, no, I was extremely rigid in my military precision. <laughs> I just kind of, I, I had the privilege of being able to, to let it go when I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know? But I always railed it back in. So when you're sitting in some, some college class and some kid says something stupid, yeah, I wasn't always restrained from saying something about it. But, <laughs> you know, 
that's okay. Because I actually thought about what I was saying, and, I, and I've kind of come to the point where in, in grad school when somebody says something stupid, I stop, I think about it, and decide whether it's worth saying something about. Yeah. I just uh, finished up an episode that I, we ended on talking about Twitter wars and, and hypocrisy. And when yeah. you make that decision of whether it's really worth having the conversation, is it something that's so important to you that you just have to say something or yeah. is it just something you just let go? Cause it's just not worth it. Oh, you know, it's been a hard, hard path, but I've, I've learned how to let go things go. You're like, all right, man, that's cool. Good for you. <laughs> so, yeah. Move on. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what, what can we do about these transitions? I think as clinicians, we need to try to understand specifics about the culture of the military. Um, just talking about the loss of transition in the military, because it is very different than these other transitions in life. Yeah. And because it you is know, I, so all-encompassing of your identity as a person, it's important to understand yeah. that. You know, I, th- I think at a time when we're so cognizant about about people's identities that we need to be, you know, really cognizant of this as well. And you need to be well-versed. Uh, I was talking to some of the WDVA about trying to get a, a, a contract as, as a therapist for them. But, and, and I, I completely agree with what they say. They want to make sure that they have, with well, a culturally proficient experts who are working with the military as counselors. And, you know, I fit that bill completely. But because I work in an agency, they, they told me no. But What? Yeah, because what they're afraid of is they give money to the agency to see these to see these veterans, and the agency can give the money to whoever they want. You know, and, and I'm already working within the agency to kind of change that a little bit, but I, I live in the middle of nowhere. So everyone knows that veterans come in to kind of push them towards me, but, yeah, we, we, we could get additional funding, but because we haven't quite worked out the details on that, it, it, it just... It's not working yet. So, oh, I get it. You know, and, and I, I get, I get the WDBA's resistance. I could quit any day I wanted to because I'm not on contract. It's kind of amazing. You know, I could go do whatever I want. And if I leave this agency, they don't have their culturally proficient military expert there. Right. So what do they? What do they do? They they have now have a contract with this agency to send people there to see me. Right. So. But I, I think as, as a whole, I, I would really like to see more veterans come towards the counseling profession to, to fix this. And, and the reason why is, you know, when you talk to somebody who, who's walked, walked in your shoes and understands and you don't have to stop mid-sentence and, and explain everything that you're saying, it, it really gives you a freedom to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when when you go to the VA, the VA has some veterans there to talk to you, but not, not a lot, you know, so it, it's just hard. It, I don't know hard. why that surprises me, but it does. Because how many people come out of, out of the infantry and, and go seek a, a degree in counseling? How many people come out of the other, the, I'm sorry, I'm going to call you a pogue. How many folks come out of the military and go after that education? It's just a difference in values and priorities. 
Right. So we have these, these senior NCOs, so that's what we did. You know, it's really how I, I figured out where I wanted to go. I, I sat down and and looked at my job, and, and in the last few months, I realized what I what I truly enjoyed most about my job was sitting down with some of the younger soldiers and, and helping them figure out what they needed to do next. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and the military can do a better job of that. We've, we talked about that, too, about having a better transition service, particularly for people that have been in, you know, and are that retirement section, because yeah. retirement in the military means you have enough life to do an entire second career. It does. And they really it do does. need to be helping people, you know, guide them in a direction that it could even be self-serving, like you're talking about. Hey, you're retiring out of the military. Would you consider going into a profession that's going to help the military and not a DOD contract necessarily? Yeah, so the Army has a couple different programs where they help people do that. Now, an ACAP, ACAP is great. It shows you where information is. But as I went through ACAP, I really felt like it was it was more, here's the website, and we'll be your cheerleaders. And mm. they're great people. They really are. And they do a great job cheerleading, but it didn't help me. And then I... I went through another program here. It was called Northwest Edge. And not only did they do it, they did a lot less of the cheerleading, but they did more active skills, like helping you write resumes, helping you use this new LinkedIn tool, helping you go through and, and actually meet people in the profession that you want to go work in. And I thought that was amazing. So they now, were more I, hands-on. It was more hands-on. I actually met with people and ended up with a job at the state that I absolutely hated, that I had to leave. You know, I, I loved everyone I worked with, but uh, I just didn't like my job. So, you know, I left and went back to school. <laughs> and so, I'm glad you did. So am I. Are so you I. planning on working with the VA population or primarily um, veteran population when you finish your degree? You know, that is what I want to do, and, and we've made it clear. I'm I really want to stay in my agency because, like I said, I live in central Washington. Grant County is about the size of Connecticut and not as populated. So, you know, getting people that have insurance in this low-income community is really hard. Yeah. And the veterans, so it's – you're, you're better math than I am. So 7% of this county is, 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 is a qualified veteran or has has a veteran, of, veteran status of some type. So – getting those people to come into my office it would still be hard because, you know, it, it's two hours north to uh, Grand Coulee or uh, almost an hour and a half, half south to, to Mattawa from where I live. So people would have to drive a long way just to come in for therapy. So, yes, absolutely, I want to focus everything I do on veterans. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm working on here with, with the uh, Veterans Advisory Board is, is trying to help get together a veterans court. So instead of these people who already volunteered for the nation went out and they fought, now they're struggling with the demons of, of PTSD or, or whatever's going on emotionally for them as they come back and they do something stupid when they get here and now we put them in prison, let's put them into therapy, see if we can help them. And if they don't want help, then we can let them go through the, through the justice system. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but be a be a cutoff so that we can hopefully re- recover these youth and, and help them become a productive member of, of, of the society versus just let them go off into the prison system where they, they shouldn't be. 
it sounds like yeah it sounds like something similar to drug court where it would be more yeah. like a mental health court yeah and it, and it, it would divert it actually, them it, that's that's like a trifecta it's the mental health courts the drug courts and the veterans courts they all work hand in hand so the the veterans court is is literally the the, the intermediary where we're dealing both with mental health issues and and the drug issues mm-hmm. in the same thing so they're obviously Yes, they may have done something criminal, but it may be in support of their drug habit, which is because they have PTSD. Right. Which is because we asked them to do something for us. Right, exactly. So to, to, say, that, to say that we should just send all these kids to jail is stupid. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say that so adamantly. <laughs> That, well, that, there's that a lot about theory. the criminal that justice system. You know, coming out of me, you know, I'm just learning things out because, you know, it's a tongue tip my tongue. I might as well just say it, right? <laughs> hey, it's a podcast. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I think there's a lot we can do to, to help veterans and, and, and help them uh, reintegrate back into society. And, and part of it has to be on them, too, because they have to choose to want to reintegrate. Because a, a lot of them are just so feel so disenfranchised from 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 what we see every day. So you know, we lived in a culture that was completely different. So mm-hmm. my loss of status is different than what I would get taught a loss of status is in a in a sociology class. Right, right, and I think that's another one of the things we can do about this is as civilians, um, people can try to understand how important status is and identity and be compassionate, but also understand people that did go through a trauma and we'll, we'll do that in another episode. We'll talk about some other things about PTSD in another episode, but um, yeah, just, just trying to understand that culture of the military and how very different it is. I mean, you can hate your other service member, but there is a bond there because you rely on them for your life, and they do the same for you, no matter how much you don't like each other. And that oh, yeah. bond like giant, is so hard to explain yeah. to people that haven't been there. We're like a giant dysfunctional family, you know. We'll fight with them <laughs> until you, you try to fight with us, and then, you, then you're done. Yeah. Because we'll, we'll turn around back to back. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, you can tell even just between, you know, Army-Navy or Navy and Marines or Army and Marines. We all tease each other. Sorry, Air Force and Coast Guard. I didn't mean to leave you out. Uh, we all give each other shit all the time. And, but it, you know, one second that someone is disparaging to them that isn't in the military, it's, it is a very brother, you know, sibling relationship that yeah. you don't get to mess with them. We mess with each other and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it really... And, and that's another thing in the loss of status is that cohesion that happens within a unit or within a corps. Yes. You know, we, we all identify as, as, as military. And, you know, you can be wearing, you can have like some subtly military t-shirts that you can only barely tell. And I'll wear those and people will know who I am or not know who I am, but know that I am military. Right. Just by wearing that t-shirt. So, it, it you know. It's great because you run into all kinds of people. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't have it in my notes, but that is a huge loss, not loss of status, but loss of cohesion. You're right. 
is yeah. you're losing that community that you may never see again because you're probably moving away from the area or they will move away from the area because everybody goes back home. You all get drawn into this same place at the same time for a couple of years or however long. And even though those individuals are moving about within the military or within duty stations, it's that same cohesive feeling of community. And, And then you get out into the real world of, Everyone wants to be isolated and independent in America, and <laughs> especially in Seattle. Yeah. You know, I, I have a really intimate co- conversation with somebody that, that's in Japan when I can look to my left and see a nice person who I can have a great conversation with. You know, it, it just, it's, it's really, uh, I don't know, different. As, as an infantryman, I spent most of my adult life living in the woods with just my backpack and my sleeping bag and my gun and, and the guys who were surrounding me, mm-hmm. whether that be a, a four man team, a nine man squad or, or a 45 man platoon, I always had those people with me, you know, and, and I, and I loved it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a big change. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Well, any final thoughts or suggestions, Rob, that we haven't discussed already about loss of transition and loss of status and anything like that? Uh, no. I'll, I'll probably think of something in 10 minutes and be like, damn it, I should have said that. <laughs> but no. no. No, no, that's how my brain works. My, my, my hamster ball is a little rusty. So. Well, I think you've made some amazing points during our talk today, so it's been very helpful. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate I, I you. Forward. Oh, gosh, I'm blushing. <laughs> and I really cannot wait for our, our talk in the future when you're settled down and you're you're graduated and you're married and everything's settled down and we can have our PTSD conversation. Yeah, that would be great, you know, because uh, I think I've, I've got too much stress on my plate already to, to really open that up and, and, and talk openly about it. Yeah. So let me get through what I'm doing right now and... Uh, recover a little bit because I, I can definitely feel the stress of two classes and an internship and, and plenty of marriage. Uh, there's, there's some days where I just come home after work and go, I love you. I'm going to bed. <laughs> well, I'm very excited so, for all the things coming in your future. Yeah. So am I. So am I. And, and I'm glad things have ha- great things have been happening for you too. Oh, now so, I'm blushing. Oh gosh. <laughs> just kidding. Now, Always been a great friend, Hallie. I really appreciate that. Likewise, Rob. Likewise. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for that podcast. That's a fascinating topic, and I can't wait to talk to Rob about PTSD and other military-related things in the future. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you use. You can email us at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC and on Facebook at slash SomedayWillAllBeDead. And in the meantime, continue to curate those friendships and uh, support systems that you have so that you can have a better quality of life because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>